I have a friend who's a pastor, and one Sunday after preaching a particularly spellbinding sermon, he went out into the parking lot and saw a woman drive her car into his car. And he went running over, and it was clear that she was okay, and she, she looked up at him, and her response was kind of funny. She said, oh, great. Out of all the cars in the parking lot, I'd have to hit the pastor's. Well, they ended up getting in an argument. And the argument just kept escalating, and they got louder and louder, and, until finally my friend realized that he was the pastor. And that yelling at a parishioner in the parking lot probably wasn't good marketing. <laughs> Conflict is a part of life, and as that story indicates, also part of church. Now, sometimes that surprises people that there's conflict in the church, but it shouldn't. After all, the whole reason that we are here is because we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And because of that, you will often find in the church friends who get angry at each other, parishioners who don't like how pastors are doing things, arguments between different church members. And in all of those situations, the thing we need more than anything else is reconciliation and unity. We're talking this quarter about what the church is supposed to be. And one of the things the church is called to be is a reconciled community. And in a world where marriages are on the rocks, neighbors sue each other, where there are class and race wars, in such a world we are called to be the source of peace. But the problem is, all too often, we are not. In fact, I think one of the reasons that 7 out of 10 Americans find the church irrelevant is because often there is just as much conflict, if not more, inside the church as there is outside the church. Now, I want to say before I go on, not all of that conflict is bad. There, there's plenty of conflict in the New Testament. Peter and Paul have some knockdown, drag-out fights. And often conflict is just the result of, of godly people trying to figure out where God is leading. And I think we as a church and as a community actually do pretty well on this score. I have found us to be a very gracious community. Still in all, we have our moments of energy. And as we go forward into our Jubilee year and really try to reach out to the needs of the world around us, we'll have conflict. And I don't think we need to be afraid of that. But at the end of the day, our witness to the world is going to be how we reconcile and stay unified. And that's what Paul is explaining in this passage. Remember, at this time, God has brought together Jews and Gentiles and put them in one church. That would be like bringing together Israelis and Palestinians and putting them in the same community. I mean, no wonder there's so much conflict. And Paul says... The, way, the reason this can happen is because Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and brought these two warring groups into one. That is the work of Jesus Christ, reconciliation. That is the work of the cross, to reconcile. To reconcile us to God, because on the cross Jesus removes the barrier of our sin. To reconcile God's justice and God's mercy. Justice is satisfied because... Sin is punished, mercy is satisfied because we're let go. Even the geometry of the cross speaks of reconciliation, bringing together the opposites of vertical and horizontal, and where they meet in the center is the heart of Christ. 
The work of Jesus and his cross is to reconcile. So how do we do that? How do we become a reconciled community? Four ways. And unlike last week, they don't all begin with the same letter. So you have to focus this time. First way we reconcile is we have to admit that we are sinners. We have to admit that we are sinful people. Paul starts this passage out by pointing, up, pointing out that everyone sins. All of us have messed up. All of us have done something to hurt other people. And in most cases, we have done something to contribute to the conflict we find ourselves in. We've done something to contribute to it. I mean, it takes two to do the Watusi, right? We've, we've jumped to conclusions. We've been focused on our own needs and desires. We've assumed the worst about someone. We've done something to contribute to the conflicts we find ourselves in. And when we realize that, reconciliation becomes easier. Because we become more humble. You know, if I'm angry at someone and my attitude is sort of, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, and if you would just admit that and maybe grovel a little bit, we could move on. Well, if that's my attitude, we're never going to get anywhere. But if my attitude is, you know what, I'm a sinner too. And I've often done things that have hurt people. I've been selfish. And in this particular case, in this conflict, I've contributed to things, to the problem as well. Now, if that's my attitude, reconciliation becomes possible. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody's better and nobody's worse. We're all just sinners in need of God's grace. Realize that and reconciliation begins. The second step for reconciliation is we need to understand how much God has forgiven us. We need to understand how much God has forgiven us. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story of two servants. One servant owed his master a million dollars and couldn't pay it, so his master forgave the debt. That servant then went out and find, found another person who owed him a couple of bucks and he couldn't pay it. So the servant threw that guy into prison. And the point of the story is the reason the servant couldn't forgive is because he didn't understand how much he'd been forgiven for. When we don't understand how much God has forgiven us, we have a hard time forgiving. At a church I used to work at, there was an administrative assistant who used to come in late almost every day because of health problems she had. And the boss would just overlook it. But if anyone else was late in that office, she would come to the boss with their timesheet and say, you got to dock their pay. They were late. And the reason she did that was because she didn't understand how much the boss was forgiving her. When we don't understand how much God has forgiven us, we have a hard time forgiving. That's why Paul reminds the Ephesians twice, not once, but twice in this passage, that they've been saved by grace. Not by anything they've done, just in case one of them gets a big head and decides to brag about it. Hey, I've been saved. You know? He says, no, it's by grace. In spite of the ways that we've been greedy, that we've hurt others, that we've lied, that we've gossiped and destroyed someone's reputation, been focused on ourselves in spite of all of those things, the God of the universe willingly bled and died on a cross to reconcile us to him. Understand that and reconciliation becomes easier. Admit that we're sinful. Understand how much God has forgiven us. Third, see things from the other person's perspective. See things from the other person's perspective. Let me give you an example. Let's just say that my wife and I get in an argument about how much I work. 
You understand this is merely a hypothetical situation. <laughs> Such an argument never actually occurs. She thinks I work too much. I think I'm being a good steward of my career. Now, if we both try to defend our position, if I say, you know what, listen to me. I've got to work this hard because, because I, this is how I provide for our family. and I've got to be in this career for another 30 years, so I want to do a good job. If I say that, what happens in her head? She starts stacking her arguments up like jets over O'Hare. And she's just waiting for me to take a breath. And because she's smarter than me, the minute I do, she begins to, like a machine gun, deliver her rebuttals to me, one after the other, until she demolishes my argument. Hypothetically speaking, of course. <laughs> but if instead I say, honey, good start, right? Honey, <laughs> you know, when I work long hours, that neglects you. And, and it leaves you alone with three screaming kids, and that would drive me nuts. And that probably makes you feel more like a maid than a wife. And if I were you, that would hurt. Now what has she said? Ah, oh, that's okay. It's not that bad. We can work this out. What's happened? She knows she's been heard. She doesn't have to fight to understand. Now, I want to say, this doesn't mean that we become doormats, that we always just, no, I'm wrong. I've got to be wrong. Scott said I've got to be wrong. No, I mean, we've got something to say that the other side needs to hear. Gary Brooks like that. <laughs> We've got some valid things that the other side needs to hear, and we need to say them. Both sides need to be heard. And it certainly doesn't mean that we allow ourselves to get hurt seriously. We've got to get out of those situations. What it does mean, though, is that both sides need to have a chance to be heard and see things from the other side's perspective. And just parenthetically, it helps if we can... Remember the good in the other person. When I'm counseling people who are angry at each other, I'll often ask them to list what they like about the other person. And what's interesting is often the person giving the compliments calms down more than the person receiving them. Because they're beginning to see that person the way God sees them. Admit we're sinful. Understand how much God has forgiven us. See from the other person's perspective. And then finally... Trust that God can bring good out of conflict. In Genesis, you'll remember the story of Joseph. His brothers try to kill him, and then they sell him into slavery. But Joseph goes on to become prime minister of, of Egypt. But when his, when his brothers find out, they're terrified, and they think Joseph's going to get revenge on them. But Joseph says this great thing. He says, relax. It's a loose translation of the Hebrew. <laughs> Chill out. It's okay. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph understands that God is protecting him, so he doesn't have to fight for himself. Yeah, his brother sold him into slavery, but God used that for good in his life, made him prime minister of Egypt. The more we trust that God will take care of us, the more we can forgive and not have to fight for ourselves. You know, the original meaning of the word forgive meant to give away to someone else. You can see it in the prefix, to forgive, to give forward, to give our anger forward to God. Revenge has the opposite prefix, backward. To give our anger and bitterness back 
to some other human being. To forgive is to give our anger forward to God and believe that he will bring good out of evil. Admit we're sinners. Understand how much God has forgiven us. See from the other person's perspective, believe that God can bring good out of conflict. A friend of mine went to Rwanda a while back, which is a country that was torn apart by genocide in the early 90s, when the Hutu tribe killed almost half a million Tutsis in just four months. My friend met a married couple there. He was Hutu, she was Tutsi. And during the genocide, her family had killed his entire extended family. And when the genocide was over, their marriage seemed over too. But he didn't want to get a divorce. He was a Christian, and he believed that God had more in store for them than that. But for years, they didn't talk to each other. And he lived in a separate bedroom. They didn't speak. Finally, he went to a racial reconciliation seminar. And at this seminar, they focused on the cross and the meaning of Jesus on the cross. And he began to realize that what that meant was that all of the Hutu sins of genocide had been punished, and Jesus had taken the punishment. And what that meant was that justice had been done, that the price had been paid, which meant that he didn't have to go get revenge. He didn't have to go punish people himself. And what that meant was that there could now be mercy. And out of this seminar, he felt that God was calling him to say three simple words to his wife. I love you. So he went home, and it took him two days to get the words out of his mouth, but he finally was able to say them. And when he did, his wife started to cry. And she cried all night long. All of those years of pent-up guilt and shame and remorse and pain coming out. And at the end of the night, they talked and began to rebuild their marriage, realizing that they were both sinners who, who had been forgiven much by God that neither of them was perfect. And seeing all the pain that the other person had gone through, seeing through their eyes what it was like, and trusting that God was bringing good out of evil, and so they were able to put their marriage back together, and a couple of days later, he moved back into the bedroom. That is the power of the cross. Reconciliation. Between us and God, and then between us and the other people in this room, and then between us and our spouses, our children, our neighbors, and our co-workers. And when we do that, we prove that Jesus is real. That's what proved that Jesus was Lord 2,000 years ago, that Jews and Gentiles could be in one community, people who had been locked in this, in this racial, economic, territorial, religious war for, forever, were able to call each other brother and sister in Jesus Christ. A first century historian called Christians the third race because unlike the rest of the world, they were the first people in history not to divide the world between us and them, but to blend all kinds of different races, classes, even enemies into one community. And what made that possible was they were focused not on each other's faults and certainly not on their own agendas, but on Jesus Christ. You see, the beginning of our conflict is when we focus on ourself and our own desires. But the end of our conflict is when we focus on Jesus. I visited a church in Washington, D.C. about a year ago, and I, I heard a woman speak. She was an elderly woman uh, who was raised in the Old South and had lived her whole life in Washington, D.C., 
taking care of the, of the urban poor. She was a passionate Christian and a devout Democrat. Well, she told us a story about how years ago she was invited to a prayer meeting with Senator Mark Hatfield, who, as you know, is a Republican. And all of her friends said, you can't go. He's a Republican. You're a Democrat. No, no, this doesn't work. You can't go to this prayer meeting. But she was curious, and so she went. And during the prayer meeting, she heard Senator Hatfield pray, and he prayed so authentically. And she began to realize that he loved the same Lord that she did. And after the meeting, he greeted her, and she introduced herself to him. And when he heard her southern accent, he took her hand and he kissed it, just like gentlemen used to do in the Old South. And then she looked up at him and noticed for the first time that he was actually kind of handsome. And her southern heart just melted, and she thought to herself, Oh, who cares how you vote? At which point she broke off her story and very sternly said to us, and that, my friends, is the problem with prayer meetings. <laughs> and that would be the problem with prayer meetings, wouldn't it? Because when we focus on Jesus instead of on ourselves, the dividing wall of hostility comes down. How about you? Who do you need to be reconciled with? How might you need to realize your own sins and the ways that you've contributed to the conflict? And how much God has forgiven you? How might you need to see through the other person's eyes and understand their fears and what they're facing? And how might you need to give your anger forward to God, believing that God can bring good out of conflict? Because surely, surely the power of the cross that is able to reconcile a Democrat to a Republican... Surely the power of the cross that was able to reconcile Jews and Gentiles, surely the power of the cross that even today is reconciling Rwandan victims of genocide with their killers, surely that power is able to keep us reconciled and to keep us unified in Jesus Christ. Until 10 out of 10 people on the east side know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the church of Jesus Christ is the most relevant thing there is, in a war-weary world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you bring us together. And Lord, I confess that I am also often angry and full of bitterness and hanging on to it and just loving it. Lord, I ask that you would take that from me, take that from my brothers and sisters in Christ if they have it. Help us to give it to you. Lord, help us to forgive each other the way you've forgiven us and understand each other the way you understand us and see each other the way you see us so that we can be one body reconciled in you. Lord, we look to you because you can do it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.